Hey, we are uh, jumping back into a series that we're uh, coming to a close in, in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. We're glad you're here. If you're new, my name is Ryan Paulson. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, man, teaching through Ephesians has been a joy. I am sad to see it coming to a close. As I was thinking about our passage, our text of study this morning, um, I was reminded of when uh, Kelly and I decided to accept the call to come here and, and we moved our life from San Diego, just north of, north of San Diego, to back to Colorado here. I hate packing. I mean, anybody with me? Is that not the worst ever? I mean, if you've moved within the last little while, you know that there is nothing as terrifying as sitting in your house knowing that you need to pack up everything you own and load it onto a truck and move it somewhere else and unpack it in another place. There is nothing worse, I don't think, than packing up a house. And, and I mean, I was telling some guys this weekend, I just get, I get paralyzed when I think about it. I mean, I would just sit there and know, all right, I got to pack and let's just watch a movie, right? I mean, <laughs> just if you ignore it long enough, it'll go away. And then when we were in California, we had somebody come up to us and say, hey, this is what we do. Um, we are professional organizers and we help people pack up their houses. And I'm like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> You're crazy. And they said, hey, we will come and we will help you for free. Now, initially I thought, um, that's sort of weird to have somebody else look through my closets and pack up all my stuff. And the, as many days as I sat there on my couch thinking I really need to start packing, their offer got better and better and better. And so eventually I went back to them and said, hey, are you serious? Would you be willing to help us pack up our house? And they said, absolutely. And so they met us there one day as we were leaving for work and taking the kids um, over to the people's house who watched them for a few mornings a week. And um, they met us there and we let them in our house and left. And when we got back to the glory of God, <laughs> the majority of our house was packed. I was like, who in the world was in here with you? And I mean, every room, every, uh, every little thing had its place. And they had these itemized lists of everything that was in every box. And they handed me this stack of papers and said, here it is. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with you people? Thank you. Thank you. And here's what, here's what I noticed, here's what I learned from, uh, from our friends who helped us pack, is that um, everything has its spot. If you, if you start in one room, you've got to make sure, and the key to packing is when you get to another place, is you pack everything from one room in the same box. You don't mix boxes, ma'am. So that you can get back to your house and find the master bedroom house in your box, and you open that box and everything goes in the master bedroom and the guest bedroom and on and on and on. You don't want to put stuff, which I did when I packed a few boxes, from the garage and the kitchen box and etc. because it just turns into a mess. That's for free this morning. <laughs> I started to think, how many of us live our lives with that same sort of philosophy? Like everything has its... Everything has its spot. Everything has its box. Right? Like we have our, um, we have our, our work box. Right? And so in it we have sort of how we interact at work and, and our relationships at work and the people who are there. And we have a, a, de a definite way that we go about our work. And, and we, have a, we have a home box. And that's sort of how we treat our family. 
You know, some of us might have really difficult home situations. And so this box is, is a little bit scary sometimes, isn't it? Um, some of us have a social box. This is the way that we interact with our friends, with the people that we just get to hang out with and do life with. And we're, we're sort of one way in all of these. And we have to know, all right, which, where am I at in order to know how to act? Some of us have a, a recreation box. I, I made this the smallest box because who has time for recreation, really? <laughs> but I mean, yeah, we have a recreation box also. And I, and I started to think about this. How many of us, if we were to be honest, we also, we have this, we have this faith box too. Where, you know, that's the, that's the relationship with Jesus box. And man, that's the one. That's the one, isn't it? That we want to we want to do our best to keep that one separate from the other boxes. We don't want we don't want to mix that box. This this box is for 2 hours on a Sunday morning. But but we don't want we don't want. In fact, duct tape this box down and you can have the exacto knife and when you walk into church, you sort of open this box and you can live this out here, but how many of us really we want to keep that one sort of to itself? See, in our, in our passage of study this morning, what Paul's going to do is he's, he's painted this great picture for us about the way in the first few chapters of Ephesians, the way that, that you are different on, an, on a core identity level. He says you've been re, redeemed, you've been adopted, you've been made holy, you've been made new, you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You are completely different. And in the last few weeks, we've been talking about ways that that trickles down in the life that's filled with the Holy Spirit, how that influences everything, everything. It makes it completely different. But here's the deal. Here's Paul's point in all of this, whether it's in marriages like we talked about last week, whether it's in the home as we're going to talk about this week, or whether it's at work as we'll talk about this week, in all areas of our life. Faith was never designed, our relationship with Jesus was never designed to just be an extra box that we sort of added to the rest of what we have going on. It was never designed to be something that was sort of a nice addition to our lives. You know, like things are going great and I accept Jesus and now things are going better and now we just, we have another box that we get to load up and that we get to pack and that we get to carry around. But man, don't, don't, don't open this anywhere except here. The Bible actually has a word for it. You ready for it? it? It's a little bit, it may sting a little bit, all right? The Bible's word is called hypocrisy. Right? I mean, it's just, hey, we're one way in one situation, and we're a different way in another, and, and it literally just means an actor or a mask wearer. Like at home, we act one way. Which is, which is why, this is a free side note, which is why one of the qualifications of being an elder is that your home is sort of in order. Why? Because that's where you spend a lot of time. And if your kids don't like you, and your wife doesn't, well, well then we don't need you meeting here. Or at work. Or socially. or I mean, how much of our lives do we sort of Segregate, And here's the deal. Here's, here's Paul's main point that we're going to circle around this morning. 
is that living an integrated life, a life where faith is not just sort of some box that we have in addition to the rest of, of our lives. It's not just some compartment that we have in the addition to all the things that we have going on in our life, that we live an integrated life where, where this box, where the faith box changes every other box and overflows into every other box. See, living an integrated life gives us freedom, and catch this, to be who we are wherever we are. Freedom to be who we are wherever we are. Because trying to gauge who you're with and decide who you're going to be is a lot of work, isn't it? I mean, it's exhausting. I don't, I don't know anybody that sort of sets out to say, this is the way that I want to live. And yet, when it comes down to it, man, I think there's so many followers of Jesus who that's a picture of their life. And so the Apostle Paul is going to write in this section of the book of Ephesians, and he's going to address this sort of Jesus is another uh, area of our life, is a separate compartment, and we should compartmentalize him. He's going to address that, and he's going to blow it out of the water. And here's how he does it, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. He writes this, Children, and if you're a parent, you're going, Oh, we came on the right day today. (laughs) Amen. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. All right, I will pause for parents to throw an elbow. All right, verse 2. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment given with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Kids, I wouldn't suggest throwing an elbow back at this point, but maybe just a sideward glance would do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, or some translations will say slaves. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does... He will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Interesting passage of scripture. Now, a lot of us, and we just need to do a little work here. We're going to get held up on this very first initial or, or sorry, second paragraph where it talks about slaves and masters. Um, the ESV, the ESV uses uh, the translation bond servants. It's the Greek word um, doulos or douloi in this case, and and it literally means slaves or or bond servants. And so we've had people, many people, sort of go, "Hey, what's the deal? What's the deal? The Bible just like writes about slavery as though it's all right, as though it's." As, it's, uh, as though it's okay, like, shouldn't the Bible be saying, hey, slavery is wrong? Well, let me unpack the context of this for just a moment. Because slavery in the first century was a lot different than what we think of slavery that happened here in the Americas. Um, about at some point in time, about two-thirds of the population would have been a slave. Uh, at the times that, that Paul's writing, about a third of the population's a slave. And so slavery wasn't necessarily a lifelong thing. 
that people went through. Um, slavery in, in, in this context, in the greater Roman area, the Roman Empire, was not tied to any one race at all. In fact, some people, for job security purposes, would, would readily sell themselves into slavery. Interesting. I mean, they would sell themselves in knowing that it's not a lifetime sentence, quote-unquote, that there was a chance that they could buy their freedom, but also, I mean, many slaves were sort of enveloped into the household of whoever their slave master was. Did you know there wasn't another, um, there wasn't another social class for people who were slaves? They were directly tied to their, their, their master, quote-unquote. And so if their master was educated there, they most likely were too. If their, if their master, quote-unquote, was wealthy, then they most likely were too. And at the time of writing, Paul writes to people who about 60 million of them are slaves. So, it's very, very different, number one. Number two, what I will say is if you go back and you look historically at people who have spoken out against slavery, bar none, it is followers of Jesus. And they use the scriptures to say, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. And this is sort of a free side note today. Hey, did you know that this isn't something of the past? This is not, that slavery is not something that happened. It's something that happens. And that there are over 27 million people today, not in this type of slavery that Paul writes about, but in a totally different kind, against their will, with no hope of getting out. And we need, once again, followers of Jesus to step up and to say, that's not right. We are not okay with that. And something needs to be done. Anyway, that's for free today. But Okay, so now that we, what we're really talking about here in the second section, in the first section we're talking about the home, children, and parents, and in the second section we're talking really about bosses, about, about work, about employees, about how we as followers of Jesus interact differently in the workplace because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and the gospel's force on us to be different types of people. To be different types of people. And so in this passage, what Paul does is he answers this question, how do we live integrated lives? Lives that don't compartmentalize, but lives who have faith that flow throughout it all. How do we live different types of lives? And he discusses that in these verses. And that's where we're jumping in to look a little bit closer. In many ways, these two passages are parallel passages. So they're going to give very similar instructions in each one and very similar results in each one with a very similar press on us as followers of Jesus. Look at this. It says, children, in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You jump down to verse 5, and bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, any, any common themes jump out? Obey, right, thank you. Hey, we are on target this morning. Great, excellent, wonderful. Yeah, he says, hey, obey. Obey. It literally means to hear under. And so what Paul said is when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and when the gospel presses on us, we realize the earthly authority that God has placed us under for our good, for our joy, and for our Discipleship. 
And so children, he says, obey your parents. Notice he doesn't say agree with them always. He says, obey them. Obey them. And I started to think, man, why would God set this up like this? What is it about that 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 brings us life? And as I've become a parent, here's the thing that I know. Here's the thing that I know. There are going to be, there's maybe one person that they will meet in their life that's going to love me as much as I will. Maybe. I mean, holding those little guys and seeing your heart, feeling your heart just explode in you and go, I didn't know that I was capable of that kind of love. And so what Paul says is, hey, there's this guard set up for for children. And the guard is we have instilled, God has instilled in the majority of parents. Now, there's some outliers. I get that. A deep love for their kids where they want the best for them, where they're going to fight for their joy. And so some of what feels like chains and what feels like constriction is actually pushing them because they believe that that's best for them and they love them more than anybody else in the world most likely ever will. So we don't necessarily, you don't have to agree, but he says you have to obey. And the same thing he says for at work is that bosses, that we would be people who obey our bosses. Now, what makes that so difficult? And can I just be honest? That's hard sometimes, isn't it? Where we're called to execute things that we're like, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. One word. Pride. For me, that's what it is. It's pride. It's it's two thoughts that go through my head. One, I think I'm smarter than you. And, And there's, have you thought about, there's a different way to do this. And it's my way. And it's obviously because it's my way. It's the right way. Absolutely. Yeah. So that thought goes through my mind. And the other thought goes through my mind. The other thought that goes through my mind is, you're not going to tell me what to do. No way. I'm an individual. I'm my own person. I have a brain. And what Paul says is, hey, hey, let's take a let's take a step back. Let's take a step back. Because God is not just calling us to do something. He's calling us to become someone. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that as Paul writes this, he writes it into a situation that is pretty difficult. And his claim is not, hey, if you start to follow Jesus, everything is going to be better. His claim is not, hey, if you follow Jesus, you you won't be a, a slave anymore. You won't be an employee anymore. You're going to be an employer. You're going to be the boss if you start to follow Jesus. No, 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 no. The Bible and Christianity is very rarely escapist. Because God is a lot more interested in who you're becoming in all these situations rather than rescuing you from them all. See, his desire is to shape you. His desire is to make you. His desire is to mold you. And often the situation that he calls you in when you hear his voice, when you hear about his grace, when you hear about his rescue, when you hear about his mercy, is the situation that he's going to use to shape you primarily. It's not necessarily going to rescue you out. And, and, and unfortunately, there's some really bad theology out there that says, hey, Jesus is sort of like a, a genie in a bottle. 
And if you rub him, if you, if you accept Christ, then everything, you're not going to be the guy sweeping the curb anymore. You're going to be the guy telling somebody else to sweep the curb. And, and it's just not true. It's just not true. Obviously, there is joy and there is meaning and life in following Jesus. But he uses the situation that we are in to shape us. Listen to the way that James puts it in James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4, he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because Jesus will rescue you from them all. No, I mean, that's not what he says at all. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or as the NIV says, perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking nothing. See, here's what Scripture just said. Scripture just said that God is a lot more interested in who we're becoming than he is with rescuing us from every little thing that comes along. And so, what do we learn about living an integrated life through all of that? Here's what I think we learn. That we live integrated lives, that, that this is not a picture of our lives all segregated and compartmentalized when we realize and recognize that God, God's work in me is just as important as God's work through me. See, when he says obey, he's not just talking about, hey, grit your teeth and bear it. He's talking about a heart condition, a change in you and in me that says, all right, I will with joy obey. I will with joy obey. There's a word that we have for this. It's called character. It's a, it's a word that describes who we are becoming. I love the way that the great Greek scholar William Mounts puts it, and he says this, At the heart of the Christian experience is a radical transformation from what we were by nature into what God intends us to become by grace. Did you know, did you know that God is far more interested in your character than he is in your comfort and than he is in your contribution? I mean, his main goal is, I'm going to press on you. I'm going to press on you so that you know the gospel, so that you love Jesus, and so that you become more like him. He wants to shape you. He wants to mold you. And so he has these laboratories set up in our lives. As as children, it's honoring and obeying our parents. As, As we grow up and have jobs, it's honoring and obeying our bosses and working hard. But he says, listen, I want to press on you to shape you, to mold you, that you might understand the authorities I've put under you, because, hey, if we can't understand earthly authority, is there any way that we're going to understand heavenly authority? No. And so in a very real way, your character development is directly tied to your joy. Because who we're becoming allows us to submit not only to the earthly authorities God has set up, but to the heavenly ones that he set up. And as we submit to him, And as we submit to Jesus, that's where we find fullness of joy and hope and life and freedom. That's where we find it. So who you're becoming is the most important thing about you. Who you're becoming is the most important thing about you. He goes on. He goes on. In verse 4. 
And because these are parallel passages, and I'm going to draw out a few points, I'm going to jump back and forth a little bit, so stick with me. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this was a very different concept, a very different view of parenting than most people had in the first century. Uh, Primarily, the view is that children were a little bit of an inconvenience, um, that they were going to be good at some point in life, but that, that, that time came when they could work and produce something. And that, we all know that's a far way off as a parent some days. seems longer than others. And so Paul steps into that, and he says, no, the gospel changes everything. We don't just view kids because of what they can produce and what they can give, but this is a calling that we step into. That God has uniquely wired us for and given us these kids to, to raise up, to shape, that they might love Jesus and walk in the joy of knowing him. Jump down to verses 6 and 7, and he writes this, that we work not in the way of, of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants, doing the will of God from the heart. Catch this part. Rendering service with a good will. As to the Lord, not to men. That's a, that's a pretty heavy statement. Because he just said there's great purpose in parenting. And here he says there's great, there's great purpose in work. Because as a follower of Jesus, you don't just work for you, your boss. You work for the Lord. That's a different perspective. And Paul is laying a different type of weight on us as followers of Jesus. And you see, here's the deal. It has a lot to do with the way that we sort of ditch the box of faith and having it be something that's just what we open on Sunday mornings for an hour, an hour and a half, or two hours, depending on how long I speak. And, then, and it's something that trickles down into the whole rest of our life. And here's what he says. As we receive, we, we live integrated lives, lives where faith flows into all the rest of this. When we receive a renewed perspective, and here's the perspective, friends, that all of life is a divine calling. All of life is a divine calling. You're going, hey, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a teacher, or I'm a janitor, or I'm a businessman, or I'm a whatever. You fill in the blank. You're telling me, Ryan, that 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 work is a divine calling? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Say, we have a kid, we we have a few children. You're saying, Ryan, that that's a divine calling? That God has a purpose for me in that? That God has a plan for me in that? That God uniquely wired me for that, Ryan? That's exactly what I'm saying. And beyond that, that God has a purpose in your play. That God has a purpose in your recreation. That God has a purpose in everything that you do that you will not step into something in your life that isn't part of his divine calling. See, Paul just talks about these two little laboratories. If you had marriage from the week before, then three. Marriage, home, and work. That God uses to shape us and form us. And his teaching in all of it is God has a divine calling in that. He has a reason in it. He has a purpose in it. Have you ever thought about that? We work not just for our boss, but as to the Lord. I love the way 
that Martin Luther does this, and, and other sort of ancient theologians, he did a ton of work in this area. And he says this. Oh, whoops, that's the wrong one. Can you get to my other Martin Luther slide? I think I put him in the wrong order. No, not that one. But here's what he says. All right, maybe I don't have it in there. We can go back. That's fine. Here's what he says. The humblest serving maid, sweeping for the glory of God, is just as honoring to God, just as infused with dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. And so he says, hey, it's about perspective. When we step into a situation, what do we step in with? What's in the back of our mind? When we wake up on a Monday morning and go, oh man, it's Monday again. What are we communicating? What are we saying? What are we really thinking? Because what he says, what what Martin Luther says, and what the scriptures back up is, hey, there's a calling in that for you. There's a purpose in that for you. It's not by accident. It's not by random circumstance. Listen to the way that Paul writes this in the book of Colossians. He says this, For by him, and the him here is Jesus, all things were created. How many? Oh, okay, good. We're together in this. In heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority, all. How many? Oh, okay, good. All things were created through him and for him. Okay, so that means, he goes to a lot of work to tell you that 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 means that you will never do something in your life that is outside of that realm of all. That Jesus created it all for him. Work, play, home, marriage, everything that you will never encounter something in the course of your life that was not created by him and for him. Now, friends, that means that there is a great, significant, unbelievable divine purpose in whatever you step into because it's created for him, by him, all of it, all of it. And I think the church has done a really bad job, not necessarily this church, but but church, capital C church, has done a really bad job of telling you, listen, hey, if you want to be involved in God's work, what you do is you become a pastor or a missionary or you work for a parachurch organization, one of the three. But if you're a businessman or woman, or if you're a, a teacher, or if you're a janitor, or if you're a fill-in-the-blank, whatever else. Well, then your, your, your work is, is merely secular. And we'd invite you, hey, pick up this box every once in a while. Come to church. You could even, hey, share the gospel with people at your work. But beyond that, nothing. Beyond that, nothing. I love the way that Martin Luther talks about this idea. He says um, that God, uh, that Jesus commands us, pray for your daily bread. And that when you receive it, it's a provision from God. And Luther talks a lot about how we get that bread. Well, let's see. Somebody tills a field. Somebody goes and gathers seed and and plants that seed. And somebody cultivates that field. They water it. They prepare it. They 
tend to it, and the crops grow, and then somebody comes and they take the crop down, and then they take it to get it processed, and somebody makes the dough, and somebody kneads the dough, and somebody bakes the dough, and then you have the bread, but how do you get the bread? Somebody comes and they take the bread, and they deliver the bread to you. It's all God's provision for you, the scriptures say. But there were a lot of people in between that seed being planted in the ground and you getting that bread. And what Martin Luther says is, hey, all of work is a divine calling. Whether you're educating people, whether you're creating order out of chaos, right? Hey, that's cleaning, right? If you have kids under four, it happens hourly in your home. He says that's, that's part of God's divine calling on your life, whether you're, you're, you're creating a safer place for people to live. And I think what we've done is we've, we, we've sort of cut the legs out from understanding that all of life is a divine calling. By making some jobs sacred and some jobs secular. You can't, you can't really find that in Scripture. There's different purposes for each role. And so you aren't just living out the gospel as you share the gospel at your work, although that's important, don't get me wrong. But as you participate in the world that God created, that he designed, that he sustains, as a creator yourself, as a designer yourself, and as a sustainer yourself, you get to taste the goodness and the grace of him saying, this work is not a curse for me. It's an invitation to taste of my goodness and my grace. So I wanted to explore, how do we really do that? And that's the first thing, is we have to understand that that work, and I'm going to sort of zero in on this, and we can talk about the home a little bit too, but I'm going to zero in on work, that work is not a curse from God. Do you know that work is, work is pre-fall? You can find work in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's by God's grace and by God's design that he gives it to us. If you're comfortable with work, you may be very uncomfortable with heaven. Because there's work in heaven. It talks about you and I being his servants. It talks about you and I reigning with him. Friends, that's, that's work. That's not like a case of the Monday's work where you're like, oh no, it's Monday again. I mean, there's great fulfillment and there's great joy in doing that type of work. But friends, work is not part of the curse. It's an invitation to God, from God, to be a part of what he's doing in the world. So what does it look like to work as though we were working under the weight of the gospel? I'm going to fly through these. One, it means that we work with excellence. It means that we work with excellence. He says that the service we perform is not to men alone, but to the Lord also. Hey, I would love, I would love for a cultural shift to happen where employers would start to see the church as the best recruiting ground they can find. Because we are people who understand we don't just work for the boss that's set up in front of us on earth, but we also work for our Lord Jesus in heaven, not to earn anything or gain something from him, but because he's been so good to us. that We just want to honor him and lift him high. And so we work with excellence. We live in this sort of seize, get degrees type of culture. 
And you can't find that in Scripture. You cannot find that in Scripture. I love the way, and now here's this other Martin Luther quote. I love the way that Luther paints this picture of how we do that. Because this is just awesome. The Christian shoemaker, he says, does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on all of his shoes, but by making really good shoes. Isn't that awesome? I mean, he just is like, there's no, there's no division between the sacred and the secular here. He's like, how does a Christian do his job? Well, he just does it so dang well that people look at it and go, he must know Jesus. Because he's working with a little bit of a different oomph. He must. Man, Colossians, the book of Colossians backs this up. Well, Paul writes, and whatever you do. Now, I just want to point out that encompasses a lot of what you do. Whatever you do, do everything. Once again, that's a lot of life he's talking about here. He's making a point. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him, glorifying God the Father. We do everything we do with excellence. Why? Because we understand that all of life is a divine calling. There's nothing that lands outside of that. Second, we're diligent in the way we work. He says we, we fear, we work and serve with fear and trembling. It doesn't mean that we're scared. It just means that we're serious about what we do. We take it seriously. We work with diligence. Um, my generation and the generation coming behind me, we are averse to adversity. We're part of what I call the tap-out generation. Hey, if it gets hard, count us out. You know, because we were told, our mommies and daddies taught us well, that everything's supposed to be easy, and then it's supposed to show up on a silver platter, and if it doesn't, well, then it's really not worth working for. And I'm being sort of joking, but after working with college students for the last five years, I'm not joking at all. I mean, if it's hard, hey, the teacher's wrong or bad or it's their fault and there's no way it's me. And we carry that over into all of the rest of our lives, whether it's relationships or whether it's home, whether it's work and what the scriptures press on us is, no, 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 you go about your work, you go about your family, you with a sense of fear and trembling, knowing that this is God's calling on your life. We work with diligence. We use everything within our power to glorify his name and to make it great. Everything within our power. We work with integrity. He says that we work with a sincere heart, not as people pleasers. We work no different when people are watching as we do when people aren't. Right, so we use the company's time well. And finally, he says we work with a good will. Hey, so so my, my dream for us as followers of Jesus at South Fellowship Church is not only that we would be great employees, I pray that we will, but also that we, we would be great co-workers. That people would love to work with us because we don't complain, because we don't talk behind our boss's back, because, I mean, can you imagine being in a workplace where, where people just didn't complain? I mean, what would they talk about then? 
I mean, but what if you were part of creating a culture where it was just a culture of joy, where you were grateful that you got to participate in what God was doing and that he got, that you were excited that he was providing for your family. And so when the boss asked you to do something, you said, absolutely. What if we were known as followers of Jesus, not as the best, not just as the best employees, but as the best coworkers? What if we stepped into our home with the same attitude and that, man, I, there are rough days as a parent, but what if, we, what if we did it with this deep, undergirded joy, knowing this is God's calling on my life, that I might love these kids and shape them and discipline them and point them to Jesus? What if we remembered that? in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the trials, and in the midst of feeling like, man, I'd rather just jet than stay with him. Man, it it could change everything. But it only changes everything as we change our perspective. Faith isn't something that we keep in a separate box, but that it influences every piece of life. Finally. He says this, children, obey your parents and the Lord for its right. Honor your father and mother. For this is a first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We're going to jump down to verse eight. So we work knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. It's an interesting statement by Paul. Because he just sort of tucked into both of these verses said, hey, I'm not just telling you to obey for obedience sake. He said, I'm telling you to obey and to follow because I want your joy. I want your joy. I want you to live the best possible life and taste of the goodness of God as deeply as you can taste of it. He says, I'm not setting these up so you'll be miserable. I'm setting them up. Whether it's, whether it's children obeying your parents or obeying your bosses or working hard, I'm setting these up, God says, so that you may taste of my goodness, receive my reward, and walk in the fullness of knowing me. See, God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. That's really different. That's really different. You see, what we learn is that we live integrated lives as we realize that living the gospel is an invitation to walk in blessing. In every area, as we sense God pressing on us, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the workplace, as we sense him pressing on us, we realize, listen, he's pressing and the Holy Spirit is stirring not to take anything from me, but to invite me to something, into the fullness of the joy of knowing Him. And here's the deal, friends. We will stand before the throne of God someday. We will stand before the throne and we will give an account of what we did with our lives. And I don't say that to, to, to fear, to, to drive any fear in you whatsoever. I just want you to know that will happen. So you can't say, hey, Paulson didn't, didn't, he didn't point that out to me when you get there. We're having this conversation today because I want you to know we will give an account, all of us will, based on what we did with the life that God gave us. And hey, it doesn't determine whether or not we get into heaven. What determines whether or not we're in heaven is whether we love Jesus and want to be with him. That's what determines whether we get in heaven. Now, it will determine 
how much we can share in and drink of and taste the Father's joy and what He's done in the world. Because as much as we participate with it, we get to taste in the joy of it. And I want you to taste of the joy greatly. I don't just want you to think that, man, faith is something that we do for a few hours on a Sunday because I think someday if that's our point of view, we'll stand before the throne of God and go, man, I wish we'd lived more for him. We left so much on the table. I, don't want, I just don't want to think I left anything on the table. I want to drink deeply of his joy in knowing him. And following him and friends, that means, that means that we live integrated lives. Lives where faith just flows into everything that we do. And hey, I want you to live that life because there is great freedom in being who you are, wherever you are. And it's God's invitation to you. 